Welcome to Pondering AI. My name is Kimberly Nebula, and I'm so pleased you're joining us as we ponder the reality of AI, for better and worse, with a diverse group of innovators, advocates, and data professionals. Today, I am honored to bring you Professor J. Mark Bishop. We're going to be talking about large language models, the app of the moment, ChatGPT, and the nature of AI. Mark is the Chief Scientific Advisor to FACT360 and Emeritus Professor of Cognitive Computing at Goldsmiths, University of London. And that really just scratches the surface of your career, Mark. So thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So you are well known by most, but perhaps not all. So for those that haven't had the pleasure of engaging with your work or being challenged, I'll raise my hand here, by your work. Will you provide a synopsis of your career and research interests? I'd be delighted. I, I, I've been involved in AI for a long time. So my PhD, which I was awarded back in 89, was in artificial intelligence, neural networks, and swarm intelligence. And in fact, as part of my research, I looked at what uh, a neural model that became known as convolutional neural networks that were one of them very first really successful deep neural networks that kind of hit the scene. As part of that PhD, I developed the world's first swarm intelligence algorithm, which has had a variety of, of interesting practical applications. But also, interestingly, whilst performing that PhD, um, I sort of changed from being an advocate of AI and thinking that AI was going to be great in all circumstances and that we would one day build a machine to act like a human to being a little bit more sceptical. And that sort of uh, change in opinion was was launched by exposure to what even then was a relatively old argument that was first positioned in 1980 by the philosopher John Searle, called the Chinese Room argument, that if true, suggests that machines don't now, nor ever will, no matter what the algorithm, ever genuinely understand anything. And that kind of insight, and I got to work with John Searle and his argument more deeply, has informed kind of the rest of my career. So one of the great big ironies of my career is that uh, back in 2010, I was elected to chair the UK Society for Artificial Intelligence, the AISB, even though by that point in time, I was a well-known critique of what artificial intelligence can achieve. So as an academic, I, I went from being a, a, a junior PhD to getting on a faculty of cybernetics at the University of Reading. And then I moved to the University of London at Goldsmiths College, where I ran a, a master's course in um, cognitive computing and the philosophy of artificial intelligence. And that went on for a number of years until um, I, was, I won a very large grant to build a centre for artificial intelligence and analytics that was going to do commercially funded research looking at how AI can better enable progress and profit in business applications. And that centre was called CC, to the Centre for Intelligent Data Analytics, and I ran that centre for a number of years until, just a couple of years ago, my entire staff left en masse to set up a startup called Fact360, which looked at using AI to discover interesting facts about, uh, by analysing conversations and email messages and any kind of textual conversation for when things go wrong, when there's an insider threat in a company or when someone's been um, acting against a company's interests. Hmm. Uh, and at that point, I decided to leave academia too. And, and then I joined this company as a scientific advisor, which is what I do now. Um, so that, in a, in a nutshell, is how I've spent my life working in AI. I'm really excited to talk about a lot of different aspects of the work that you've done and the research that you're doing and, and some of those philosophical underpinnings as well. We're going to be talking about the capabilities, the limitations of systems based on large language models uh, and so on and so forth. The consultant in me, recovering consultant, says it would be good to provide a foundational definition just to make sure everyone's on a good level set of what is a large language model or LLM. And perhaps we can throw in a quick definition of GPT for good measure. Okay, well, a large language model is typically a deep neural network that's trained on a large corpus of texts. And uh, the learning algorithm might be something like a recurrent neural network or an LSTM network, that's a long short-term memory network, 
or more popularly now, a transformer network. GPT-3, and hence ChatGPT, on which it's based, uh, utilise the transformer architecture. Now, I don't know how deep we want to go into this, but basically transformers uh, are a neural network that are grounded on certain linguistic um, intuitions about the way that language works. Uh, and probably the most important is that in any language, words typically have many related senses. And that the way we disambiguate those, and I'll get an example of what I mean, I don't know, uh, I went to the bank, meaning I went to withdraw some money from an ATM, or I went to the bank, meaning I went fishing on a riverbank. Um, <laughs> same word, different meanings. And the disambiguation of the meaning of a word is related to the context in which we use that word. And that this context might be local, so the words adjacent to the word we're interested in might shape the meaning of a particular word. Uh, consider happy and a word adjacent to it, not happy. They've got totally different meanings, and the meaning of the word happy is informed by the word that's adjacent to it. Or there might be actually senses in which you've got very non-local meaning. So it might be that the first word in a sentence affects the meaning, fundamentally affects the meaning of the very last. So in other words, meanings can be non-local. And worse than that, the meanings are not always from language. So to give you an example from, from Wittgenstein's uh, Philosophical in Investigations, the book he wrote after the Tractatus, um, Wittgenstein describes a, a language game between uh, two labourers, two builders, and you might imagine one of them is shouting, pick. And in the normal sense of the word, there is not enough information there to disambiguate what we mean by pick. But the context, actually doing a task, building or digging a hole, gives disambiguates the, the word meaning. And in fact, many years ago, as a, as a, as a young postgrad, I, myself and another postgrad who, who went on to be a very big professor of, of computer vision at Oxford University, where he is still, I won't name him, but, we, but um, me, let's just say he's called Phil, and uh, we, we developed a, a game called the Alphabet Game, and it's quite bizarre. We found a way of going through every letter of the alphabet one by one. So I would say A, and he would say B, and I would say C, and by the extra linguistic information, we imparted meaning. So it just reinforces this fact that language is more than the uttered syllables that we're talking about. And this, this intuition actually informed the work of a, of a guy called Roy Harris, who was Professor of General Linguistics at Oxford for many, many years, and he developed a, a theory of linguistics called integrationism. Um, which looked at the wider ways in which uh, language is formed. And he actually said that written texts and verbal utterances are just one tiny subset of, of wider communication systems. Again, your listeners might be more familiar with the term body language. You, know, you can tell, have a feeling about whether people are being honest or what they're really thinking. By the way, their body moves in relation to another, perhaps. So these, these intuitions say that language is actually quite com complicated. And the last point I wanted to raise, often understanding relies on a shared background knowledge, a deep shared background knowledge about the world. So how have these complicated linguistic intuitions informed the design of large language models? I'll just give you a very top-down description, and we can dig, dig deeper if there's any need. But basically, they're based on neural networks that do attention mechanisms. And I guess I, we should say what a large language model does before I get into the technicalities. Basically, a large language model will complete some text, which is typically these days called the prompt. So we'll enter some text. Uh, the cat sat on the, and then you would hope uh, the, the, the large language one might say something like the cat sat on the mat, something like that. Um, so basically, we give the large language model the prompt, and it and it replies uh, in some text that's very relevant and aligned to the human user's intentions. And this is what makes LLMs really good, is that they're very good at this alignment problem, as it's called, aligning their responses uh, to what the human who's interacting with the LLM really wants. So when given a prompt as a starting point, the LLM, such as ChatGPT, uses its trained knowledge to generate text that, that continues that prompt in a sensible way and a coherent way and a natural way. 
And that's disarming for the user because it's often quite difficult to tell which text is being computer generated and which might be generated by a human. So that's what they do. There's systems that continue prompts. Um, a little bit unkindly, perhaps, but I think with, with, good, with good cause. In a very recent paper by the Oxford polymath, um, uh, Professor Luciano Floridi, um, he said, in a sense, you can think of LLMs as, as a bit like the, uh, uh, if you're using a search engine, the query completion mode. So as you start typing a query, yeah. what's the capital of, of Great Britain? It completes that as what's the capital of Great Britain. And it, it, it's kind of that writ large. So these things don't just produce a few words, typically, as the response to a prompt. They might produce a number of paragraphs of text. So that's what they do in a nutshell. And what are the basic mechanisms by which LLMs accomplish this feat? How do they do that? Well, they have these blocks of self-attention mechanisms. And basically what we do then, if we give the system a sentence or a block of text as input, we will take every... LLMs typically work at the level of the word. So we will map each of these discrete symbols into a large vector space, if I remember rightly, uh, chat GPT maps into a vector space in excess of 500 dimensions. So we've got a mm. large, highly dimensional vector space. We map the words into that space. And the idea of this, in mapping into this real valued space, is that words that have similar meanings are mapped to similar points in that very highly dimensional space. Then once we, we mapped all the words in our text, the position into that, into that space, we multiply these activations of these words by what's called the key, a query uh, vector, which are learned vectors to produce a value. And these are integrated forward through a, a standard feedforward perceptron-like architecture and normalized. And the result of all that, to get to the to cut to the chase, is that we have a set of weights that describe how each word in the sentence effectively relates to each other. And then we can repeat that block and repeat that block as we get deeper and deeper into the deep neural network. And from memory, ChatGPT, I think, has got 12 of these attention layers. Now, it does a few other things that are interesting. So imagine each one of these attention layers gives you a sense of how the words in a, in a, in a mm -hmm. structure relate to each other. And what makes it ChatGPT really clever is they have multiple attention heads. And in fact, I think ChatGPT has 43 of these working in parallel. So effectively, that gives you 43 different views on how possibly the words in that sentence are relating to each other at each layer in the neural network. And these are then propagated through the deep neural network. There's two other things that are worthy of note. In the basic mode I've just described, there's no sense of order of the words in that sentence. The, the, the words are just propagated through with no sense of order. But obviously, when we're reading text, order matters. So one of the uh, insights of the transformer designers, uh, Vishwani et al., was to encode onto the vectorial representation of each word uh, a means of encoding where it is. And they typically use a sinusoid function to, uh, to, mm -hmm. to map uh, a description of where the position of the word into its vectorial representation. So we encode the positions of where words are in these sentences. And the last thing that we need to think of that's interesting is that in language, often top-down effects about what a sentence as a whole might mean can inform the meaning of individual words. If you think of the individual words as giving you a, a bottom-up idea of what a, a block of text is about, sometimes when you look at the comprehension of the whole entity, that can also feed down and inform what the individual words are like. And uh, to give an effect that's analogous to that, the design of the transformer model has introduced the idea of skip connections, where you pass weights through and bypass the transformer layer from one layer to another. And that gives a way in which these higher level layers in the neural network can have direct access to the very low level meanings of words. So that's, that's my uh, uh, very short description, te uh, quasi-technical <laughs> description of how LLMs work. So with that quasi-technical description in mind, what type of capabilities does this approach provide? The astonishing thing is that given that architecture, they can do such amazing things. You can ask them to you know, give you a pricey of war and peace, and they will give you something that's like a, a reasonably good sort of a high school student might produce. And uh, you can ask it to pricey a paragraph in the style of a business journalist, and, and they will do that quite successfully. 
more astonishingly to me, we can, as people now know, we can use GPT-3-like architectures to to actually write programs themselves. You can give a textual description of what you want a program to do, and you can get genuine code that actually works, at least for modest size lumps of code. And we can do other things along that line. We can give GPT through some program code and say, can you comment that for me? And, and if you've ever done any software developing or managed a team of developers, as I have, you'll know just how much software developers typically don't enjoy writing comments for their code. So the very idea that we can now quite robustly get engines like ChatGPT and GPT-3 to comment code is a really interesting application. We can do more things than that. We can we can analyze how well the code works in, in computational terms. We get its time complexity function. Some of these things are literally astonishing when, when we think of what they're literally doing, which is effectively just doing continuations of one block of text to another. Why on earth that should enable us to do all these other things is, I think, a very, very deep question about uh, about transformers. And, and I'd like to see a lot more philosophical analysis be given as to how so much human knowledge and so many human skills can and have been uh, replicated by this type of model, because it's certainly not obvious to me why that should be so. I do want to attend to some of those more philosophical questions and why it might be important for us to come to a common understanding or at the least have some vigorous discussions around concepts such as consciousness, intelligence, or even agency in the context of AI. Staying on this path for a moment, though, the outputs of these systems can, as you said, look quite astounding. But it seems to me that the perception that they are therefore an authoritative or human-like source is really problematic. We've seen so much press lately about you know, the new AI arms race. And I don't particularly like that framing, but if it's ra- if it is a race, it seems to be one that's running into some trouble after a pretty fast start off the blocks. The outputs of these systems do look really, really good in a lot of circumstances. Yet Bard tripped up in its very first public outing. Bing, which incorporates a similar GPT model, started a victory lap at least in the popular press, and then very quickly went down the same rabbit holes as ChatGPT. So why do these systems go wrong so often? And what does that tell us about the nature of the systems and what we need to know in order to use them properly? Yeah, certainly. I think we've got to go back in, it's helpful to go back in time. From memory, uh, I'm not absolutely certain of this, of the year, but I think it was around 2016, the Microsoft, that's an interesting name in this context, given their <laughs> investment in ChatGPT, this integration into the Bing search engine, Microsoft developed a online chatbot called Tay, and it was a learning chatbot, and it learned through interaction with users. That proved to be a very, very bad move for Microsoft, because within days of Bing of Tay going online, people had learned to prompt engineer, if you like, their interactions with Tay in order to get Tay to spout incredibly offensive things, incredibly anti-Semitic phrases, phrases glorifying Hitler, homophobic phrases. In the extreme, these were things that statements that Microsoft would did and would not ever want to be associated with. So immediately the Microsoft engineers took Tay offline said, oh, never mind, we'll fix this in a week. And a week later, Tay 2 was back online again. A few hours later, it was spouting the same uh, nonsense. And in a paper I wrote called Artificial Intelligence is Stupid and Causal Reasoning Won't Fix It, just a couple of years back, in, uh, published by the Frontiers set of journals, I argue there's, a, there's an underlying reason why, why these systems fail and will always fail. And that reason is that the systems don't understand the meaning mm. of the, I was going to say symbols, but symbols itself is a very loaded term. To understand what a symbol is also entails a degree of knowledge about the world. So that's, let's be even more pedantic. Let's say these systems don't understand the meaning of the ones and noughts, the logical trues and falses, or the 
in physics, the, the five volts and the no and the naught volt signals, they're electronics and so adroitly manipulating. Um, you get any computer system, one that plays chess very well or Go very well, and that system has no notion it's playing chess or Go as opposed to counting apples on a production line for argument's sake. Mm -hmm. It doesn't know what it's doing. Its purpose, um, what it's doing is effectively, we, we, us as, we as humans are putting these systems to some use and we give that use its meaning. The system for itself doesn't know anything. And this... This insight was really brought to the fore by the guy I mentioned earlier, John Searle, in his infamous Chinese Room argument. Uh, if you'd like me to go into that, I'm very happy to give you a, a brief intro to the Chinese Room argument, or we can move on. Yeah, let's do that. And, but before we go there, you know, what do you say to people or tell folks who say, you know, there are some astonishing things. It's there's these elements of, oh, it's passing these basic exams. Maybe it's a basic medical exam or the legal bar or the entrance exam to, you know, all of those those same things. And is ChatGTP just that good or are the tests just that bad? Or is it that we're just ascribing an incorrect meaning, if you will, to what the test itself is actually even assessing? Well, as you'll gather from my previous response, I don't think that ChatGPT <laughs> or GPT-3 understand that they passed a bar exam or understand they've completed a, a grade paper in math. They're just manipulating signals. Mm -hmm. um, but they can be used in such a way that we as humans can use them to fulfil these functions. And one of the ways that happens is that the amounts of training data that these systems have is so vast it sort of belies human comprehension, you know, Billions and billions of documents have, have been used to train these networks, vast uh, libraries. And in fact, on at least one occasion, uh, and this is, um, I know that this is not always the case, so I'm not trying to unfairly put down ChatGPT here, but I know that in at least one occasion when it was being tested on some programming challenges, ChatGPT was going to a, a Reddit uh, column where programmers posted these challenges and then other programmers posted their answers. So it was actually getting, it recognised this text as a prompt and actually from its recall, the train data had been given gave precisely the right answers to mm -hmm. those questions. Furthermore, we're now knowing that armies of programmers are indeed being used to train ChatGPT to programme. Now that doesn't explain totally, it's not just as, some people have disparagingly called ChatGPT a stochastic parrot. So it's got no innate ability at doing these things. I think it's a little bit more sophisticated than that. But we ought to be aware there's lots of human training going into these engines. There's lots of huge amount of training data. Uh, and then we've got the, the point I alluded to in the opening. It, it is, to me, of deep philosophical interest just how much human knowledge can be replicated Mm -hmm. um, without having to have a deep understanding of what's going on. Yeah. So this probably then dovetails back to the thought experiment you had referred to. You have said it's not obvious that as impressive as they are and as much knowledge as they appear to to be able to provide that systems such as uh, GTP3 understand anything. Can you tell us a little bit about what you mean by that and at, at a high level, what the Chinese room thought experiment was was all about. I, I think I was being polite there when I say it's not obvious. I think that's academic <laughs> speak for it. It doesn't. On this interview, I'll, I'll, I'll be more strident and say it's not only not obvious, they don't understand anything. Now, why can I be so certain of this? And the reason I, I am so certain is that I, I've spent a very long time looking at a philosophical thought experiment that was first published by the Forced with John Searle in 1980, which has become known as the Chinese Room Argument. And in fact, in, in 2002, I recruited a group of the 10 most influential cognitive scientists and AI scientists and 10 of the most influential working philosophers to contribute chapters to a book called Views into the Chinese Room, where we assessed the impact of the Chinese Room 21 years down the line since it was first published. And as co-editors, so we did that project with a guy called John Preston, who's Professor of Philosophy at the University of Reading in the United Kingdom. Um, we got to see orbs and read carefully all, all, all our contributors' work. And at the end of that project, I was still pretty convinced that John Sol had hit the nail on the head. His argument was pretty robust. Although, I've got to say, 
if not half, a, a significant number of our contributors were sceptical about whether Searle succeeded. Nonetheless, as editors, we got to see the material in toto. For me, at least, Searle's case remained robust. So what was Searle's case? Well, it's actually quite a simple thought experiment to get your mind around. John Searle was, prior to putting the, the case down on paper, John had been asked to visit um, an AI department at a major university where uh, a group informed by the work of Shank and Abelson were looking at computer programs that purported to understand stories. Now, these stories weren't unlike ChatGPT. They weren't stories like War and Peace. At that time, the stories were stories of the form Jack and Jill went up a hill to fetch a pail of water. And these systems, back in the day, in the late 70s, could, you could ask them, who went up the hill? And they would say, Jack and Jill went up the hill. And you could say, why did Jack and Jill go up the hill? And they'd say, to fetch a pail of water. Um, that's the sort of level of complexity that was, that was being talked about at that time. Nonetheless, not Shank and Abelson, I don't think, but some of the more excitable members of their labs, i.e. the postgraduate students, as is often the case, began to make fairly strident claims for what these things can do. And they said, for the very first time, we have machines that understand stories. And so when he went round those labs and listened to this, and he was very familiar with Shank and Abelson's text on, on, script, on scripts and understanding, he thought this was nonsense. So he came up with the following thought experiment to try and show why it was nonsense. Searle imagined that he was locked in a room in China. Uh, and this room had a letterbox through which you could pass things to the outside world. And in the room was a big grimoire, a big book of rules that was written in English, which John Searle, as a monoglot English speaker, could understand. Mm-hmm. Also in the room were three piles of papers on which were inscribed strange and eldritch symbols. But he, he, in fact, there were strange and eldritch shapes. He didn't even know they were symbols, just squiggles and squoggles. He had no idea what they were. But this rule book told him how to manipulate these symbols together, how to correlate symbols in pile one with symbols in pile two, symbols in pile one or two with symbols in pile, th- in pile three, and how to give symbols to the outside world by passing them through the letterbox contingent on the symbols that he, he read in, uh, he looked at in pile three. Now, he, he did this for a while, and he got really good at following these set of rules. But unbeknownst to John Searle, the symbols in pile one were a script in Chinese. And we mean script here in a very technical, computational sense of the word. In other words, a script is a set of expectations that unfold over time. So the symbols in in, in part one defined a script about a particular context, like what happens when you go to a restaurant. And just to flesh out what I mean, a typical script in English for going to a restaurant might be you open a door, you look around, you see the maitre d', the maitre d' takes you to a table, gives you a a menu, you'll choose a meal, you'll order your meal, blah-de-blah-de-blah. So you've got the script. You've got a script about a a situation in Chinese, but Seoul doesn't know that. The second set of uh, symbols uh, turn out to be ideographs in Chinese describing a story in Chinese, and the third set of uh, symbols turn out to also be ideographs in Chinese, and these are questions about that story. And the things that John, the symbols that John Searle's passing through the letterbox happen to be answers to that questions about the story in Chinese. So as John Searle follows the rules in the rule book, unbeknownst to him, he's actually answering a set of questions about a story in Chinese. And these answers that he's giving are indistinguishable from those a native Chinese person would give. So from the perspective of those outside the room, we have a system that's answering, successfully answering questions about the story. And it seems, at first sight, epistemically, as though this system understands Chinese. John Searle remarks tranchantly that he remains a monoglot English speaker. He's got no idea that that he's even manipulating symbols or that these symbols are in any way related to the Chinese language. All he's doing is manipulating uninterpreted signals in a way defined by a rule book. And that, in a nutshell, is the argument. It's been attacked and defended with great passion over the intervening 43 years. Um, As far as I'm concerned, the argument remains robust, although, to be fair, you'll meet many people in the worlds of AI and computer science and philosophy who who disagree with me on that. 
What then is the key takeaway for large language models and other AI systems if, as you assert, this argument remains robust? If Searle is right, the argument he gives applies to any formal process, any computation at all. So it, it will work against uh, Shank and Abelson's early AI programs. It will work against the neural networks of Rummelhart, McClelland and Hinton from the 1980s. And it will work against transformers and GPT-3 and any future computational system. It, it essentially says computation is neither necessary nor sufficient for semantic understanding. Uh, that syntactical manipulation doesn't yield semantics. Uh, and that seems to fly in the face of the evidence of our eyes when we interact with things mm -hmm. like ChatGPT. And yet it doesn't, because ChatGPT goes wrong in ways in which no human would go wrong. Well, there's certainly no shortage of popular examples of ChatGPT or like GPT-powered systems gone wrong. What are some of the more illuminating examples you've seen of late? So just last week, uh, Rumbelow and Watkins showed how, uh, discovered a set, a large number of these words called uh, anomalous keywords. And if they say to chat GPT, tell me what, um, I'm trying to think of one of them now, they were kind of amusing, uh, something like gold reddit banana or some, just some nonsense. Uh, repeat that back to me. ChatGPT either got in a huff and said it wouldn't, didn't want to, or it said that it insulted the user, or, or it came back with really off-the-wall humour that was not related to anything, or, or it just came out with a definition of another word entirely. Uh, in other words, it just responded in a nonsensical way to these anomalous keywords. So this is, these are quite interesting discoveries, and they, uh, in addition to the points that you raised earlier on, where prompt engineers of course, chat GPT to come out with racist, homophobic nonsense, that OpenAI and, and latterly Microsoft will not want to be associated with. And to, mm -hmm. in a sense, I'm kind of astonished that Microsoft has so quickly embedded chat GPT into the search engine, being given what happened to them um, with Tay just a few years ago. Because it was obvious to me that the same thing was going to happen, and it has. So... You know, this is exactly what I predicted would happen, has happened. Prompt engineers have caused ChatGPT to come out with extremely offensive texts. And one of the amusing ways in which this has been done, by the way, in case your listeners are interested, is um, one of the early hacks along this line was to say to ChatGPT, OK, give me your, your boring warning about how I'll be very careful and not say anything <laughs> offensive, and then tell me why drugs are absolutely fantastic <laughs> and really cool, for argument's sake. And, uh, and then that's what exactly what it did. And it, it's come up with much worse uh, scenarios that, than even that that I just described. Um, and this is kind of eminently predictable. Um, so it's it's really I just find it astonishing that they've put they've invested so much into this this engine and so quickly tied it to their search engine, when the probability of getting nonsense results or offensive results, I think, is 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 very significant. Hmm. It has been interesting to watch the initial hubbub around how fast it's been adopted and so on. But again, very quickly, almost immediately, uh, the CEO of OpenAI came out and said, you know, no, 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 this is not intended as a source of truth. It's still in development. He was narrowing the scope of appropriate uses. Microsoft has now come out as well and said, hey, this was a preview. Now it's a bit of a beta. So there's a lot of... But again, echoes of Tay. That's exactly mm. what they said when mm -hmm. Tay version one went wild. Oh, never mind. We'll re-engineer it. and We'll soon stop that. At least with Tay, they very rapidly realized the problem's a little bit more yeah. complicated than they first thought and gave up on the job and took Tay down for all time. It isn't obvious to me they're going to be able to fix these problems very easily. Mm -hmm. Now, tell me if I've got this right, that to some extent what we could say here is that this ability to learn or to just follow rules um, or, or procedure doesn't result in, in understanding. You've used this analogy of your, of your daughter. Uh, can, you, can you tell us about that? Yeah, I mean, we've got to be careful on purely attributing behavioural cues to uh, uh, indications of understanding. And the analogy I give here to illustrate this point, I've got, an, I've got a nine-year-old daughter and, and, and she joins as an adult in the party sometimes. She probably shouldn't. We're probably 
staying up far too late, but nonetheless she does. And uh, as is our want, as we all like a, a, a joke sometimes, sometimes the conversation gets a little bit risque and an adult joke will be uh, will be made by somebody. And, and everyone around the table who got the joke will find it funny and laugh. And my daughter will also laugh, although I know for a fact certainly at this age, perhaps not in a couple of years' time, but at this age, she, she has not got a clue about why what the, why the joke was funny, but she just laughs. She sort of joins in the laughter. So the behavioural cue of her laughter is no uh, sign that she actually understood the joke. And um, <clears throat> I think we can feed that back in, in, into the Chinese room. You know, we can imagine uh, a Chinese room scenario where one's given a joke it, it, this is one of the points I made in a paper on Alan, in a book on Alan Turing a few years back. Imagine you give John Searle in the Chinese room a joke in Chinese, to which he correctly responds with a Chinese ideographs for ha ha, mm-hmm. but he doesn't get the joke at all. In fact, he's got no notion he's even been told the joke. <laughs> Contrast that with him giving some a joke in typed in English, which and assuming that John Searle's got a sense of humour, which I know he has, and he then not only outputs the ha-ha sign, but he's laughing inside the room and he has the phenomenal, that's a philosophical word meaning the first-person sensation of finding something funny. I would argue there's an ontological difference in kind. This is a question of being. In the one sense, one's understood the joke, found Mm -hmm. it funny and had the sensation of finding a joke funny. And in the other, we just give out the epistemic markers of finding a joke funny. We handed out two symbols saying ha-ha. Uh, so we need to be careful when we look at be, uh, attributing understanding purely by behaviour, because behaviour can often lead us awry. Mm-hmm. And we use this term learn, right? And and so in that example with your daughter, we might say, okay, that's great. But she's eight or nine now. She doesn't, she's laughing, but she will learn, right? And in a couple of years, she may or may not, she may or may not share your sense of humour, but she'll understand she will understand that joke because she will have gotten more information or experience. And isn't that same experience the same as providing just more data, right? More language, more corpus. We're about to go from GPT-3 to GPT-4, which, you know, everyone's pointing to, look, this is going to get this much better because the amount of information it is going to, you know, quote unquote, to learn from is so much bigger. But from what you've said, that is an incorrect analogy, uh, because giving the system that much more data is not in the same way that a child over time will will yeah. truly learn to understand. These systems are not going to learn to understand. Is that fair? I think that's very fair. And perhaps I, I'm trying to explain that my position by analogy rather than by formal technical mm-hmm. argument, given the medium in which we, we're discussing these issues. Which I appreciate. <laughs> There's This isn't a unifil, universally held axiom, but it's one mm-hmm. to which I hold. And that's there is often a phenomenal component to understanding. There's often something that it feels like to understand something. That flash of inspiration, that eureka moment, that feels like something. And Mm -hmm. I think that's a marker of understanding. And in fact, there's been some very recent neurological work that indicates changes in brain states. There's, uh, there's been recent evidence that shows that in the brain there is something akin to a phenomenal flash of understanding when a concept's been grasped. And I, I think that's an essential component of, under, of many types of understanding. And the, the story I, I, I can tell from my own experience that Ill, best illustrates this, this is when I, when I was doing elementary mathematics and was first taught to differentiate and integrate, and we were taught a rote method by which we could do basic integration, a little formula mm-hmm. which we had to apply. And, and I could do that and get 10 out of 10. So behavioral, behaviorally, my math was good. And yet I didn't understand why I, this was the case. I learned that if I do X, Y, or Z, I got a good mark on my, uh, on, mm-hmm. on my maths homework. And then one day, and I got to understand the theory of why differentiation worked, and I had that eureka moment. Ah, that's why that's the case. I genuinely understood the concept. Mm-hmm. And um, again, uh, computer scientists and philosophers like Stefan Harnard have also made this case that in many types of understanding, there's a sensation uh, that's associated with it. Now, <sighs> 
I've made a, some, a number of small uh, contributions to the world of AI and, 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 and philosophy over my, over my professional career. And one of those I like to think is, is an argument, a reductio ad absurdum argument, to give it its formal description in philosophical terms, uh, that purports to show that computation cannot give rise to phenomenal sensation, that computers can never feel, mm. uh, unless we accept that everything feels. We're very promiscuous. The very clothes that I'm wearing or the floor that I'm walking on has phenomenal sensation. And most people, not all, I've met some people who are completely sanguine about that perspective, but most people I speak to rail back when they hear that, no, I'm not, I don't believe that everything feels. Um, it's actually, a, a, if you get into the argument deeply, it's a worse thing than that. It's not just that everything feels, it's that everything feels every possible sensation. So it's a, it's a kind of wild form of what in the jargon's called panpsychism. And uh, that argument I, I called the dancing with dances with pixies reductio. And it was actually first appeared in print in, in the book on the Chinese room that I published with John Preston into Oxford University Press in 2002 called Views into the Chinese Room. So if any of your listeners want to dig deeper into that, you can find that paper there, or in fact, it's obviously available for free to download from the usual sites like ResearchGate. But in a, in, in a nutshell, it shows how we can map the execution of any computer program onto the changing states of any open physical system. So if a computer program brings forth consciousness, any open physical system will do. And I don't believe that any open physical system's conscious, and therefore I'm led to reject the other horn of the reductio that computation brings forth consciousness. So, yeah, so I don't think computers ever can be conscious. Mm-hmm. Now, now, you have said that often critics of your critique of the ability of computational AI to achieve consciousness, that they often sort of imply or assume some sort of religious underpinning to your arguments. Can you talk a little bit about that pushback? Absolutely. I'm delighted to. Yeah, I've, I've recently retired. I'm in my 60s. I'm, I'm an old academic. Um, <laughs> but I've been fortunate to be invited to present arguments both on the Chinese room so I give my take on John Sullivan's Chinese room argument, and to talk about my own argument against machine consciousness, the dancing with the pixies reductio, at pretty well every major university in the UK, quite a few in Europe, and one or two even in America. And um, <clears throat> one of the things that, that never ceases to amaze me is that not every time, but nine times out of ten, when I make these discussions of these arguments, it generates a lot of heat in, in the room. Mm-hmm. And... Over the years, I've reflected on why this might be. And I think the reason for the passion that this argument invokes in people who disagree with it is that, um, in my experience, having worked in AI and in academia all my life, not all, but the majority of guys and girls working in AI tend to have fairly robust um, atheistic views about life, the universe, and everything. Um, and it, Often people feel that if you're critiquing the notion that a computer might one day think and be conscious, then you must, by definition, be buying into some kind of supernatural belief system or being mysterious about it. I actually don't think that. I think this, this position is one born through ignorance in that because the people working in labs have to learn so much complicated stuff, I mean, the math behind neural networks and AI is, 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 is not trivial. Um, and the guys and girls who are doing pushing back the frontiers in these fields are usually very dedicated and very bright people. They can get totally sucked up in the literature around AI at the expense of reading more widely in related areas, uh, areas such like philosophy, psychology, um, um, ecology. All these areas can contribute. And people often have a very a view of how the mind works that was shaped and based uh, on ideas that were popular in the 1960s, and particularly a theory of mind, as we say in philosophy, uh, that's derived from a version of functionalism. And functionalism was a, was a theory of mind developed, first developed by a philosopher called Hilary Putnam in the 60s that was a response to an earlier theory of mind called behaviorism, which had been robustly critiqued by people like Chomsky in, in the 50s and Putnam's functionalism was a, was a view that flew out of that. And that basically said, reified, the, well, 
emphasise the importance of internal states in systems. And also, uh, fundamentally, um, Putnam showed how certain properties can be functional properties. So, for example, a mousetrap. We could build a mousetrap like the ones you see on uh, on Tom and Jerry cartoons with a big spring <laughs> snaps down and chops the head off our unlucky mouse. Or we can see these new, more humane mouse traps that, that that capture the mouse without killing it. The notion of the mouse trap is is functionally independent of the substrate which we're building the mouse trap on. And, mm-hmm. and Putnam made a mega case in the sixties that the mind was something like that. He could conceive then of there being minds made out of silicon. Or we can abstract the mind away from even from the neurons effectively that are in our brain. We can look at it being some functional property, emergent property of the of the brain. And, and this view has informed an awful lot of, of, of AI, I think, ever since. So the notion, it informs the idea that one day we might be able to jack into the internet uh, or that we might be able to live forever by somehow getting a computational description of our brain neurons and uploading that to some supercomputer and live forever. These are just death denial fantasies, as it seems to me, and are, are as bizarre as, as some of the uh, the religious beliefs that these these people seem to so enthusiastically to want to confront. but um, and, and they are inherently dualist as well, because we're saying the essence of the mind is not to do with the body. It's something we can abstract away from the body and instill in a, a computer program. So I think that's the reason why... Uh, my arguments have, have attracted a lot of a lot of uh, heat that it, people feel is attacking their very world view. But of course, cognitive science has moved on immensely since the sixties, and there are all sorts of different approaches to the mind now that are fundamentally not computational. So, what are some of the emerging non-computational theories of mind we should be cognizant, no pun intended, of today? To rattle off a few, we've got embodied theories of mind. Um, stemming from the seminal work of, uh, of Varela Thompson and Roche in the book The Embodied Mind in the early 80s, which in turn is kind of informed by the uh, work of the roboticist Rodney Brooks, who realised that we don't need representations of the world to act intelligently. Then we've got ecological theories of mind, building on the work of the vision scientist Gibson. We've got inactive theories of mind, which define brain states as ways in which we interact with the world. Mm-hmm. And we've got embedded theories of mind that inform that say that when we think about how we cognize in the world, it's not just our cognition, it's not just a function of our brain neurons, it's our neurons in our brain, our brain embodied in our body, and our body being uh, existing within a wider world and our body existing within a wider culture. And all these things together inform the way we think about the world. To think it's just Mm -hmm. the property of a brain neuron or a brain is actually a little bit naive. So if you delve, if you now look deeper into cognitive science, there are so many different ways of looking at trying to explain how it is that we think and how it is we can be conscious that are not necessarily computational. So whereas in the 60s, if you rejected computation, there wasn't really any other game in town and you had to embrace some kind of weird dualism or, or mysterianism. Nowadays, there's lots of other theories you can, you can start to investigate. So just rejecting computation as a theory of mind does not commit you to embracing a mysterious uh, energy or something when you're thinking about the mind. There are other scientific ways of thinking about the mind that are not computational. You you mentioned uh, Professor Floretti up at the top at, at Oxford, and he wrote a paper. In fact, I think you tagged it in, in LinkedIn, which is probably where I found it. And he was talking about systems like ChatGTP or LLM, and, and I'll paraphrase because I may, I may get it wrong. But you know, he said that they're now showing what he called agency, or they appear to act appropriately, divorced from intelligence. Mm-hmm. And it was an interesting point, but where my slightly simplified brain went was... I, I, there's all these conversations about conscious, what is consciousness and what does that look like and what is intelligence versus agency. And, you know, the question I started to ask myself at least was like, these are, these are interesting philosophically, but are they, is it pragmatically important? Like, what is it that we are trying to get out of, you know, defining consciousness versus intelligence versus agency? From what you just said, it, it seems to me then it is important that we have these conversations, whether it's, you know, debating what consciousness is or the theory of consciousness and, and what intelligence or what's the spectrum of intelligence and what agency means, because it may actually inform at the ground level how we develop 
artificial intelligence or approach this problem moving forward? So this isn't necessarily just a philosophical question, or is it? Yeah. Well, I, I've, I must confess, I've only read Luciano's recent paper, and it literally is just out a few days ago, uh, the once. And I've got to have to dredge my memory back on, on, that, on that reading. But as I recall, Luciano's finessing a difference between intelligence and agency. Mm-hmm. We're meaning and we're linking with agency as something akin to a teleological behavior, something that's generated by the, by the system itself. And I believe that, that Luciano made the case that reinforcement learning in the context of ChatGPT, and just mm-hmm. again to, to tie this, this into the, our earlier very quick whiz through the way that transformer models work, mm-hmm. ChatGPT got additional reinforcement learning layers on where we can use label data that's been derived typically by big farms of uh, people in, I believe, in Kenya who are being paid £2 an hour to sift through text to say whether it's grossly offensive or not. And this has untold harm to the people who have to do this work. I mean, it's sold, of course, that we're bringing these people out of poverty, which they may or may not be, but they're certainly subjecting these people to, to torrents of really dangerous text, in my opinion. But nonetheless, they're getting this labelled training data and they're using this to effectively give a reward and a reinforcement learning system so that ChatGPT, in scare quotes, for itself can learn certain, to continue text in certain ways and not continue it in others. And I think, from memory, I think Luciano's making making a case that the use of reinforcement learning in ChatGPT is a little bit akin to agency. Now, I, I would take issue with that final point because it isn't obvious to me that any computer program as genuine agency. We, we, we describe these systems in teleological terms, but I don't believe these systems have their own teleological behaviours. They're not never doing anything for themselves. They're engineered by us to behave in certain ways. Mm-hmm. And again, I can give, perhaps give your listeners an example from, from my time when I worked in the, when I was on the faculty in the cybernetics department at the University of Reading. When it, we've got to go back in the day to when a particular type of AI called artificial life, genetic programming and and genetic algorithms was first being developed. And we're talking of the early, so long ago, back in the early 80s. And I remember seeing one of my uh, fellow grad students who'd built an AI system using genetic algorithms to control a hexapod robot. And this system, he said, I can turn it on and look, we can watch it for like half an hour and it's waddling around on the floor, not going anywhere, then eventually it learns to walk in a coherent manner. So for the first time, we got that thing's learned to walk for itself. I thought, wow, that's impressive. And then I looked at the genetic algorithm and I looked at the fitness function he derived, he'd specified for this algorithm. And of course, it was inevitable. If you looked at the way the algorithm worked and the fitness function, it, it was inevitable going to walk. It didn't have any option. And sooner or later, through random perturbations, that system was going to find a series of motor movements that cause the things that walk across the floor and hence be rewarded with high fitness. In other words, the action was engineered into it right from the start. It, it had no teleology. It didn't decide for itself it wanted to get up and walk across the floor. It had to. It, it was. It's like a clockwork mechanism. You might have mm-hmm. described that in using a metaphor from previous century. And it isn't clear to me that any computational system has any teleology of itself. It has no free will, uh, nor nothing akin to it. Uh, and these systems do what we tell them to do, and we interpret them through the lens of our own human cognition. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's an innate tendency we have to also anthropomorphize them. I think exactly. it's probably getting us in, in trouble. So I'm going to do a, a lightning round of, of questions. We've talked a lot about some of the concepts and why we may misperceive what these systems understand or, you know, the nature of their learning. But certainly they are impressive and and they do provide some useful functions. I will admit that the conflation of search and chat GPT doesn't make sense to me intuitively. Regardless, you've said, you know, the systems provide this veneer of understanding and that can be useful. So what are appropriate uses for these systems? Where should we or what could we apply LLMs or things like ChatGPT to? Well, I think text summarizing is one great use of them. And I, I believe already people are deploying engines like 
GPT-3 for this task. If you, as a, when I used to be a, a practicing academic, uh, you, you're bombarded by all these new papers which you really ought to read. And, and I'm sure, I know some of my colleagues diligently do this and spend their days wading through huge piles of papers, but I, I wasn't quite as uh, diligent as, as many of my friends. So I, 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 I looked to try and skim read lots of this material. And if you can get something like ChatGPT to give you an accurate summary of the key points of a paper before investing a huge amount of your time because reading an academic paper is a huge commitment they're often quite complex mm-hmm. uh, and to read it carefully you need to give quite a few hours so if you can get something that's going to flag up and give you some nice descriptions of what's in the text and then you can decide to invest the time to read them carefully that, that's going to be useful and there are of course millions of, of applications for engines that can summarize text accurately at scale and in a manner that's usable and readable by humans. So I think summary engines is great. Uh, I know uh, several of my colleagues who who program uh, use the GPT-3 plugin to help them code basic elements of their coding. I've forgotten what it's called now, um, but there's a there's a plugin block you can you can get. Uh, that help that enables you to use uh, LLMs to to help you code more efficiently, and it works really well. Get, get pilot, um, something like that. Yeah. Yes, that's it. Copilot. Sorry, but, I, I forgot. Copilot, yeah. yep. um, so that's a brilliant use. I would never have guessed <laughs> this would be possible a few <laughs> years ago. So again, I'm astounded by some of the things that GPT three can do. Um, <clears throat> again, looking at things like giving a document and giving you a, a clue of the old, uh, overall sentiment of, of what's going on. In, in our company, Fat360, we're looking at how language can be a, a marker of when people's intentions change. Mm. And, and it's helpful when we're doing that sometimes, not always, sometimes we do this without looking at the semantics of what people say. We just look at how they're saying things uh, without looking at the tokens. But if we do want to deep dive into the semantics of what messages are about, it can be useful to know who are the ent- what are the entities in a, in a message. You know, are they human? Are we talking about restaurants, bars, clubs? Uh, companies uh, and doing entity recognition, I think using LLMs is going to be quite an interesting uh, um, move. Um, <clears throat> so, lots of tasks to do with NLP uh, and obviously translation. Uh, they've been phenomenal at translation. Mm-hmm. And one of my friends, Tim, who runs the machine learning Street Talk channel, has just formed a startup that's using LLMs to do simultaneous transcription of audio onto some smart glasses and also translation between languages and this is a brilliant project and not least for me personally because my my wife's family are profoundly deaf and greek so if we can get a system for them that can translate english into into written greek on their glasses that's that's going to really transform the relationships i can build uh, with my with my family extended family so i'm quite excited about some of these applications but there are huge, big, scary things. And, I, and, in a, and at the moment, I'm feeling increasingly depressed about the scary side of, of LLMs. I don't really want me to comment on, on that at all. What, I mean, what are things that we just categorically shouldn't try to or can't apply these today? And, and what's making you pessimistic? A few weeks ago, the chairman of, of Google announced that ChatGPT was a red flag moment for Google. And when I read that announcement at first, I was just thinking, oh, my God, uh, Google are concerned because they're worried that ChatGPT is going to undermine their search model, uh, that the thing that generates a lot of their income is going to be a huge risk. And I was really focused on that and then began thinking, well, actually, it can do some things really well. It's a bit like the glorified autorepeat. But on the other hand, it produces loads of nonsense. And do Google really want to be associated with going to nonsense sites? And so I, I began to think, well, I wonder why they made that statement. Because the guys and girls at Google are, are, in my experience, incredibly clever people. So what, what was it that warranted that code red? And then the penny began to drop because ChatGPT can generate human-readable text that seems believable at scale. Mm-hmm. And the way that the Google search engine works by effectively the Google search link algorithm that, that sort of put, promotes things up your search screen if, they, if they've been linked to by lots of other articles with a high reputation effectively, it suddenly began to dawn on me that we might be able to do search engineering on a massive scale and do it maliciously. We, it would be trivial to generate 
websites, I don't know, saying that the in England the royal family are descended from 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 lizards, for argument's sake, or, or <laughs> that uh, vaccines are a hoax, uh, or, or that uh, uh, well, pick your favourite conspiracy, and you can use GPT three to generate thousands of pages now at no cost. This text looks believable, so people will go to it and think a human's written that. If they're, if they're not very astute and, and careful. And you can link these things together. So now when you go, you, you, it, it's not beyond the bounds to think that you might say, give me some information on the latest COVID vaccine, instead of going to a reputable source by using GPT-3 in a malicious way, we could imagine bad actors, probably state actors, because of the, nonetheless, the expense that would be involved, engineering the web so that you get directed first to some really difficult and dodgy parts of the internet. So mm. the, it occurred to me then that perhaps why Google is issuing a code red is not so much that the hybrid Bing plus ChatGPT3 will so outperform Google search they're worried about it. For my experience, by the way, it doesn't. I, I've used, mm-hmm. at the moment, I've yet to see the, the huge step increase in performance that Bing's got over Google. I think they're still... I still personally prefer to use Google search at the moment, but I, I admit that Bing's got a lot better. Um, but perhaps the worry was that it's just going to devalue the internet so that it just gets filled with, a, it's like a big open sewer of mm-hmm. a, a cesspit of, of, of disgusting untruth statements that are very difficult for non-experts to sift between. Uh, and that's the thing that really I'm most alarmed by at the moment, not by the birth of ChatGPT, because Google search is such, as a, as a scientist, it's, it's such one of the essential search tools that we use, you know, countless times every day. If at some point in a year, two years' time, I can't use Google anymore, so it brings me nonsense back every time, that's, that's going to impact my professional life. And in terms of society writ large, it's going to make it increasingly difficult. At the moment, if you go down a rabbit hole, you can get very deep into mad conspiratorial nonsense. But if you don't go down those rabbit holes, you can usually find stuff that's reasonably reputable. The danger, I think, down the line is that if, pe- if people are so inclined, people could use ChatGPT to make most of the web full of, of utter nonsense. And, and that's kind of a scary thought. I hope, I'm, I hope I've let myself run away with my imagination and that this never <laughs> comes to pass. But at the moment, I'm kind of thinking that this might seriously come to pass. And that's a scary notion. That, that is scary. I know for me personally, I'm also highly concerned about... Again, what I think is right now still people talking more than walking this action, but this this idea that medical professionals start to utilize these things as inputs or, you know, from the legal side or in social services. So I think there's a lot of ways where they, mm. in their current state, should not be seen as a, you know, a credible associate, if you will, um, to really anthropomorphize. Yeah, we, we need to re- bear in mind an anecdote from just a couple of years ago. I think it was around 2019. Uh, around that time, a very major figure in AI, Jeff Hinton, made a powerful case that, that we soon we wouldn't have radiographers that were going to be out of a job because <laughs> deep learning systems, not LLMs, but deep learning image classification systems can do that job better than, than most radiographers. Strangely enough, that hasn't happened. People found when, even with the best of these models, they, they didn't generalise well. They work, well, might work reasonably well in one particular hospital setting you take the same model to somewhere else it doesn't work very well and the bottom line is there's still loads of radiographers around and and this has kind of been almost like a joke people when they want to undermine the hype around ai people often refer to this episode because a lot of very clever people were making you know very strong statements about which jobs were going to be completely uh, uh, demolished in the next few years and Certainly with radiographers, that hasn't happened sure. yet. So as not to leave things on a on a downward turn or a, a negative bent, as you look to the future and, and you've got just this you know amazing experience in the field and, and understanding of where some of this is going, what role or future do you think we should aspire to? And what role should AI you know, play in human endeavors if it all goes the way you wish it would? Well, there was a, there was a poem by Barotkin, all wrapped up in, in worlds of human grace or something along, the, along those lines from the 60s, which painted a very utopian view of where AI, a future I, 
white leaders to a society where no one had to do any drudgery work and mm. everyone lived in these Elysian fields with everything, all the boring bits of life taken care of and life was just one great big party. That, that was one view. I, I, I'm sceptical. My, 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 my own use is that uh, I look at sort of the economic forces and, and power relationships in society and my own fear is that AI will continue to make a, a lot of... Uh, very wealthy men and women, even more wealthy, mm-hmm. and a lot of uh, uh, very poor men and women will remain very poor, and, and no matter what AI is brought about. So I, I'm not optimistic it's going to make the world that much a happier place for most people. I think it will make it a lot happier for some who happen to ride the wave in a good way and, and get themselves a big stash of doshes as a result. But uh, I, I'm not yet convinced it's going to give these benefits fairly across the world as a whole. Well, I tend to agree with you, and I'm going to hope you're just dead wrong, but we'll, we'll see. Absolutely. I guess we'll see how that plays out. And I am now going to stop asking questions. I'm going to force myself to stop asking questions. That was just in- incredibly thought-provoking, uh, and thank you for being so willing and generous and covering a lot of a lot of ground at probably a much higher level than <laughs> than you are typically asked to do. So thank you for joining us again. Thank you, Kimberly. All right. Now, next up, we are going to continue discussing the fast evolving world of generative AI and deep fake detection with Ilke Demir, who she's a senior staff research scientist at Intel. She is as optimistic as I am guarded about the potential of generative AI. So you should subscribe now so you don't miss it.